Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Contest and Me, a podcast from the Euro Trip. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Euro Trip, the world's favorite Eurovision podcast, and the fifth episode in this series of The Contest and Me. I'm Rob, and as ever, I'm joined by Mr. James Rowe. Hello. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. I'm glad you're keeping count. When you said it's the fifth episode, you sort of flustered me. I thought, is it? Is it definitely number five? Yes, it is. A fifth fantastic conversation coming up this week. It's another great one, isn't it, Rob? That makes it sound like we've had five conversations just this week alone. (laughs) Well, you say that. We've got more to tell you about more conversations later in the week. Still to come, but you'll have to stay tuned for that. Yes, this might not be the only episode in your podcast feed this week. But as James said, more of that to come. But yeah, today, episode five of The Contest in Me, and it's a voice that you will have heard on the Eurotrip before, and it's a man with a very important job when it comes to the Eurovision Song Contest and the Junior Eurovision Song Contest. It is Dave Goodman, and he is the communications lead for both of those competitions, which means he has a storied history going all the way back, actually, to the 1990s when it comes to Eurovision, and maybe a little bit further back than that as well. Yeah, the communications lead for Eurovision and Junior Eurovision at the EBU. I bet you he can't fit that job title into those little boxes on those forms. I bet he can't. (laughs) Just think how big his email signature is as well. Dave, as Rob has just said, has some of the most fascinating stories you will ever hear on the Eurotrip. I know we speak to so many people, but I assure you, some of the most fascinating stories to come. So many brilliant ones. And as James said, all that to come on today's episode of The Contest and Me. Yes, thanks again for tuning in to the Eurotrip. It is episode number five of The Contest and Me. We've got some more to come your way over the next few weeks. Don't you worry. Uh, But thanks for tuning in to this Eurovision podcast. I say this Eurovision podcast because uh, over the last seven days on Twitter, uh, we, we had a tweet. Well, we didn't receive this tweet, but somebody, Matt ESC United on Twitter, said, honest question, do Eurovision fans listen to podcasts? Come on, Matt. Come on, buddy. Hopefully we are a, a glowing example of, of, of the answer. Yes, Eurovision fans do indeed listen to podcasts. So thanks to, uh, to a few of you. Uh, Gina, uh, it's Gina Jones on Twitter for saying, yes, I do. The Eurotrip always. <laughs> yeah, she added, didn't she? I listen when I'm folding my washing. 
brackets, I have two kids who love changing outfits five times a day, so it takes a very long time. It's a good job that these episodes are always pretty lengthy then, Gina, isn't it? If you're listening to this. <laughs> Maybe she needs five episodes a day then to sort of keep up with the, the rotation of clothes that our children are going through. I'm not going to commit to five episodes a day. That was just hypothesizing. I'm not going to commit to that by any stretch. That is a full-time job. This podcast is pretty much already a full-time job, but that <laughs> would be a full-time job. Uh, you mentioned Matt ESC United. Uh, Matt is obviously a very important man in the world of Eurovision. does some <laughs> great stuff over at ESC United. Matt, we know you are. Don't worry. But if you want to start another Eurovision podcast, feel free. More the merrier. <laughs> and another one as well, at BlueZone97, who I know loves to get involved with us over on Twitter especially. They say, I listened to three, not to mention the other two, because why would I? But I think you probably know who they are. Uh, he included us there, though, at Eurotrip Podcast. They say they love having to listen to us. So thank you to Gina. Thank you to Blue Zone. And thanks to everyone else who listens to us. Yes, and also get in touch. We're talking about Twitter. Uh, we say this every single week, but I'll remind you, we are at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, as well as hello at EurotripPodcast.com on the email for, for any of your thoughts. But before we get into that chat with Dave Goodman, which is brilliant so many incredible stories on this week's episode of the contest and me hannah has shared one of the best things i have seen on the internet with us and it is eurovision related and it does relate to last week's episode james do you know what i'm talking about uh i can barely remember what i had for my lunch never mind last week's episode (laughs) if you can remember what was it oh man alive was it toby no what did you have your lunch you have toby for your lunch I had a, uh, a ploughman sandwich. Oh, very good. Yeah. Uh, good chutney? Uh, it was, yeah, it was good for a sandwich shop. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Anyway, uh, Hannah got in touch on Twitter. And you may remember that last week on the podcast, we were talking about one of our favourite subjects, which is Eurovision songs in the wild. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think you know where maybe this is going. So Hannah tweeted us to say found this clip of a band at Oregon University, so this is in America, playing veggies and pussy on Reddit. <laughs> like, honestly, this is ridiculous. And then Hannah has sent us the Reddit link. James, would you like to hear the band at Oregon University playing this year's Latvian Eurovision entry? Yes. Yes, I would. Right. Well, let's have a listen. Honestly, you know when we talk about Eurovision songs in the wild, and we, I mentioned one last week where a song was in a cafe. You mentioned one at an Israeli restaurant in London. I wouldn't genuinely. Where where do you draw the line? I wouldn't expect a. Where was that? An, an Oregon University brass band. Yeah, the Oregon University brass band there playing Latvia's <laughs> Eurovision entry. I don't know what the thought process was when they were brainstorming what songs they could play before before the match that they they were performing at, but I'm not complaining. Uh, Hannah also added, by the way, that wasn't just it. She said, an American friend of mine, brackets, and Eurovision fan, heard Embers playing in Victoria's Secret in Nashville once. Hashtag Eurovision in unlikely places. (laughs) Well, if you've got any more hashtag Eurovision in unlikely places, then please do get in touch. James already told you where to go, at Eurotrip Podcast, Twitter and Instagram. Right then, I think we've waffled on enough. Let's get to the the important part of this week's podcast. Your chat, Rob, with Dave Goodman from the EBU. Absolutely. We've already given him his big job title at the start of today's episode. (laughs) Communications lead at the European Broadcasting Union for Eurovision and Junior Eurovision. What a job. And he's been in that job for quite a long time. And before that, He was also a BBC journalist working at the contest. And before that, he was a fan just like you and me. So he has got so many stories about his love of the Eurovision Song Contest. And what's best, you're going to hear all of them in around about the next 40 minutes or so. So if you want to hear things about Daz Sampson or Ken Bruce or escaping from Eurovision Island, then let me tell you, you have come to the right place. Escape from Eurovision Island, which sounds like the best board game that would make any family Christmas, if you ask me. Yeah, all that still to come. But we kick off 
And this seems like an odd place to kick off, but I promise it's relevant with me asking Dave, of course, about Eurovision 2022, but a meal that we both shared when we were there. So let's get to it. Here is Dave Goodman on today's episode of The Contest and Me. Dave Goodman, welcome to The Contest and Me. Thank you for having me. It's an honour and a pleasure. Dave, it is always brilliant to have you on the Euro trip and now on The Contest and me. Safe to say that at the time that you're talking to me, you are a very busy man. I know you can't say exactly what is going on in, in EBU land, but I think people know full well that obviously we're approaching a, a host city announcement for the UK. So so a very busy time in, in EBU towers? Yes, very busy. Uh, it's been busy all summer, actually. There's, it's not really let up this year for, for obvious reasons. But yeah, certainly now we're getting to the point where we, we're going to have a host city very shortly and then start moving on with the production for next year. And also we're planning for the junior Eurovision Song Contest, of course, which is in December. So things start to get a lot busier for that as well. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been a busy few months and it's certainly going to get busier in the next few weeks. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So lots of exciting news to to keep our eyes on and, and find out what's uh, what's happening, where Eurovision 2023 is going to be. Junior Eurovision, of course, as you said, on the way as well. I'm going to take you back to 2022. We just mentioned 2023 there, but let's go back to the Eurovision that we saw in Turin, in Italy. Me and you were both out there. We spent a bit of time together. We had a lovely meal, I think, one of the evenings in Turin, which I still look back very, very fondly on. Well, personally, I was going to actually mention that meal because one of my overarching memories of Turin 2022 was eating calves' brains. Yes, and you, you, I seem to remember, were the only one brave enough to order it. Yes, well, we, we were very fortunate um, because obviously when, you, when you're out there working, the days are very, very long and so are the nights and you don't often get a chance to get out and actually breathe a little and enjoy the city you're in but that one night we were so fortunate that our digital team uh, got taken out by some of the rye team some of the host broadcasters team um, including uh, Stefania Tudisco who was my counterpart looking after communications for rye and they took us to an amazing local restaurant um, and they said to us you know we're going to take you to this best restaurant in, in Turin that serves local Piemontese cuisine, food from the local area. And the menu was very diverse and it was very un-pizza and un-pasta. And it was very good to see local food you know, and try something different. And there was calves' brains on the menu. And I thought, well, I'm probably never going to be presented with this option again. So I will order them. Uh, hopefully no one's listening to this at the point at which either they're having their breakfast, their lunch or their dinner. But do you mind talking us through what, what calves' brain is like? <laughs> well... I've got to say, it wasn't as unpleasant as it might sound. It didn't come sort of as a brain, as you might imagine, in a horror film on a plate. It was essentially what it looked like. They looked like chicken nuggets. I mean, it was sort of deep fried, breaded brain. And (laughs) the texture was sort of slightly, oh, well, very soft, softer than a nugget. Um, but the taste was okay. It was very, a bit dry. There wasn't much with it. I can't remember what it was served with now, but it was. I felt very dry. But nothing outrageous, not particularly unpleasant te- taste, but a very sort of soft texture. I would eat them again. This is uh, this is like the contest in me turned master chef now. <laughs> well, it, it made it made a it made a big difference, I think, because most of the time we were out there, and I was there for two and a half weeks. There was just a lot of pasta and pizza, obviously, because it's the easiest food to get hold of. And particularly when you're in the venue, there was a lot of that being being served. So it was just nice to get out. And and there was an amazing dessert trolley as well. I was going to mention the dessert trolley. That was fab, wasn't it? Lots of incredible Italian desserts. And they gave you, I don't know, one of each if you wanted. There was, you know, you could have four bits on the plate. Um, it was just great. That was that was a real highlight. Apart from that, I mean, obviously, the the the, the two and a half weeks out there were were pretty intense for various reasons um it was a great great experience the italians were were really really good hosts to us and i really enjoyed working with the team there they had some amazing people who were so enthusiastic and for all of them it was a very new experience for eurovision they hadn't been to previous eurovisions they hadn't worked on eurovision before so to have all that 
um, experience in in their country. You know, they were so excited and enthusiastic and helpful, so incredibly helpful. It was a fantastic team that we worked with, and and, and the digital team that uh, I was looking after, uh, which you were part of for for a while, and we were really grateful was was amazing as well. So that, it was a real sense of camaraderie out there that I, I took away from the contest. Such good fun such good uh, teamwork and a lot of running around because everything was very far apart in Turin. Like the arena and the press centre were connected by a, a bridge. Uh, so you had to go upstairs, downstairs and across a bridge a lot. Um, so I got a lot of exercise in Turin. Uh, the audience as well. I think, I, you know, I went into the arena during the jury final uh, for the grand final. Um, and that was the only time I was in the arena um with an audience, uh, apart from obviously hearing the audience at, at, during the shows, but uh, that was incredible. I really, I really thought the audience this year certainly it came across on the TV. But going in there for that for that jury final, I thought they, you know, the, the excitement, the buzz, the enthusiasm, the cheering. I, probably because Eurovision's been gone for a while in terms of you know having a, a big audience um, because of COVID. I felt there was a real atmosphere this year, um, real, you know, joy. And I, I really, really felt that. I, I thought, you know, that was, that was very, very special. Yeah, it was, a, it was an absolute sort of carnival of, of fans in the, in the, the Palat Alpator uh, in May, which was brilliant. It was fantastic. And I, as you know, Dave, and, and, you know, we share many of the same memories, but look back very fondly on, on that contest for various reasons. If we go back, as we must here on the contest and me, even further. Uh, Dave, I don't know how far we're going to go. You can tell me. But we begin, as always, with your first Eurovision memory. Yes, I've been given this a lot of thought um, and what my first memory was, because obviously we've watched so many contests now and, and it's hard to sort of just go back to that moment where I was sort of conscious of Eurovision as a kid. And I pretty much remember Johnny Logan's Hold Me Now but not possibly at the contest itself. And I would have been 10 that year in 87. But I remember it being on one of those now, that's what I call music albums. So I knew the song. Um, but after that, I don't really remember anything until definitely 89. 89, I remember Eurovision that year because the same day as the song contest, we had a school trip and I grew up in Manchester. And we had a school trip to Bradford where there was the National Film and Photography Museum. I think it's got a different name now. And we had a school trip there. And I remember being very excited that Eurovision was on that night. So perhaps I saw 88, but definitely 89, we were talking about Eurovision that night. However, that evening, I remember watching the show, bits of the show, particularly remember Banabana from Turkey, particularly remember that. But I also remember going for a bath during that Eurovision. <laughs> Definitely went for a bath and came back for the voting. So I wouldn't have seen all the songs, but I had a bath and I came back and I remember Yugoslavia winning and rock me. So that is my first real proper memory. I remember that night and that day very vividly. Yeah, such an iconic contest as well. Like you say, it was the year following Celine Dion's victory, of course, in 88, the last time that Eurovision was held in in Switzerland, which things come full circle, Dave. Of course, Switzerland now the place that you call home and, and is the home, of course, of the EBU in Geneva. Yes. And I remember the beginning of that contest. In fact, because I got the contest of 89 on a VHS from a friend who'd recorded it because I didn't. So I've still got it somewhere, the video of 89 and I remember the beginning of that contest because I'd watched it a lot after that and Celine arrives at the contest in Lausanne in Switzerland which is not far from where I live now um, and she arrives at the beginning of the contest and runs up some steps at the venue and when I came to Switzerland I think in oh when was it when I was interrailing in the in the mid 90s I didn't come to Geneva then but I did go to Lausanne and I wanted to go to that venue. So I took some friends who had no interest in Eurovision to that venue, the Palais de Beaulieu, I think it's called, just to stand on the steps that Celine Dion had ran up at the 89 Eurovision. And outside, Heidi Beats, last year's winner of the Eurovision. Won in Dublin for Switzerland by Celine Dion with Ne Partez Pas Sans Moi, which she's going to sing for us. Very shortly now, we're going to have a bit of singing. It is the Eurovision Song Contest, after all. This is the Salis Asia, where it's all being staged, very high-tech, before a huge audience. 
Visasia won the first Eurovision in 1956 for Switzerland. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how things come come full circle. It was great to great to hear your memories of, of Switzerland. Of course, you are now, as we've already said, talking to talking to us here on the podcast from Geneva. So, Dave, we've mentioned there eighty nine. You you went for a bath. We've also <laughs> mentioned we've also mentioned eighty eight, and and you also mentioned Johnny Logan as well in, in your answer. If we go forward, I guess a, a, a little bit further to to the moment that. Obviously, you're enjoying Eurovision at that point, but I'm guessing you've not necessarily fallen in love. So is is there a moment that comes maybe a few years further down the line that really makes you fall in love with with Eurovision and, and everything that, that it is as, as the world's biggest TV show? Yes, this wasn't too long after 89, actually. It was 91. It was Eurovision in Rome in 91. And that was the contest that made me fall in love with Eurovision. And I was 14 at the time. So I watched the 90 contest, but I don't have many memories of it. But definitely 91, I remember watching with uh, my family and my mum used to iron on a Saturday night. I don't know if she still does, but she definitely used to (laughs) iron on a Saturday night uh, in front of things like Juliet Bravo and television of, of that era. But I remember the 91 Eurovision and watching it definitely with her and she was ironing. And it was the song contest that made me fall in love with Eurovision because it was such a spectacular, dramatic, (laughs) unique event, shall we say. And we know why. And it was so different from other television that you saw all the time on the BBC and on ITV in the UK growing up. It was so different. It was so unique and... I don't know, exotic, I suppose. I suppose I was by that age, I was really aware of the, the the format and the fact that I was watching songs from different countries and a television production from another country. And of course, it was hosted by the legendary Toto, um, the winner from the previous year, and Gigliola, of course, who won for Italy in 64. And it was, shall we be kind, slightly chaotic in its organisation. <laughs> and the voting was what really grabbed me. It was the whole voting. It was the interruptions from Frank Neff, the scrutineer. It was Toto, you know, not being able to hear the spokespersons. It was Giuliola trying to keep him in line. It was her clipboard that she had. It was everything. It was just brilliant. And it was so engaging and so different. Um, and it was live television going slightly wrong. And that's what made me think, this is really special. Grace, 12 points. Grace, 12 points. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Sweden. La Sweden. 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 Sweden, 10. 12 points. Israel, 8 points. Israel, 7 points. Israel, all those voices coming in from different parts of Europe and and just this sort of rather chaotic production and the tie break of course because it, it it was the best year to have a tie break because it was it, it had gone so well all the way through the show of course and then we had a tie break to deal with as well so it was that moment of the tie break of the who is going to win this is it going to be sweden is it going to be france and of course the whole thing was in italian so we had wogan terry wogan the uk commentator explaining it uh, thank goodness, because otherwise you wouldn't have known why Sweden had won over France. And I'm not sure Terry Wogan actually explained it correctly at the time, but he said there were more top votes given to Sweden, which was sort of correct. Um, so, yes, 91 was the year I fell in love with Eurovision, and I really thought, this is special. There's something amazing about this show. Music in different languages and a, a live TV show where anything can and does happen. Looking back on on ninety one, you know, you mentioned the the chaotic nature of the show. But looking back now, with your EBU hat on and and your kind of organisational Eurovision hat on, you must have a lot of respect for what happened in ninety one. Because looking back at the history of that contest, it was moved, wasn't it, to Rome 
very, very kind of short notice before Eurovision was going to take place in 91. I think it was due to be in San Remo, wasn't it, of course? Very historically significant, as as everybody listening to this knows. And then they moved it to Rome because, of course, there was the emerging war in Yugoslavia at the time. But from a purely organisational kind of perspective, you must have a lot of respect for, for what Rai did back then. Yes, and when when Rai won, when Italy won last year, I was quite excited because it was... 30 years since that contest in Rome and since I fell in love with Eurovision. So it felt quite apt. Um, And having watched the production and, yeah, and having been involved in Eurovision for so many years, I can see what potentially happened in 91. Yes, and as you say, as far as I understand, it was moved very late. So there was a lot of organising to do. and, And it was a smaller event then, but nevertheless a big event even you know for its time it was not the number of countries we have now but it would have taken a lot of organizing and logistics so yes I think there was probably now I've seen everything that happens and the planning needed for a Eurovision I have sympathy for for what happened in 91 Um, but it was also I think you know an extremely Italian production um, and in a good way and I think that was what we saw this year in Turin and, and what I experienced with with our Italian colleagues was was that difference that different way of doing things and and that is the most amazing thing about getting to work on Eurovision and going to Eurovision is that you experience the different cultures and every year there is that cultural difference in the production of Eurovision and and we certainly saw it in Rome 91 uh, but we, we still see it now and it's great because that's what keeps the show fresh that's what keeps it going the fact we go somewhere new every year and uh, it's what makes it exciting and, and challenging as well at the same time. Now good luck differentiating your answer here Dave because you've said how much you loved Eurovision 91 because it was of course the the moment you said there that you fell in love with the Eurovision Song Contest and the next question we move on to is Dave what was your favourite Eurovision year? So good luck trying to pick a different year from 91 or or is it still 91? (laughs) Well 91 for those reasons already given um yeah favourite I mean favourite for because I've been involved in working on the song contest as well as going to it. I mean, I, the first contest I went to um, just as a spectator was 98 in Birmingham. So that was pretty special to actually go to Eurovision for the very first time and see what it was like to be in the arena. And that was a really exciting Eurovision because obviously Dharma International won and it was very tight at the voting as well. So it was really exciting. Um, and then after that, I went to Riga also, which was great fun. The UK came last, so that was quite memorable um and after that i worked at eurovision as a journalist um from 2006 onwards pretty much until i started working at the ebu in 2014 so it's really hard to pick like the most memorable contest in terms of uh being there in terms of songs ah well i mean i would actually say 2009 is is sort of probably my favorite contest for that reason because this i think i liked you know nearly all the songs that year not all but nearly all um but in terms of favorite contests it's so difficult to choose because they've they've got so many special memories i think um for different reasons rotterdam was was probably my favorite uh, contest of more recent years because it was very different and we'd come back from covid and we were all in you know a sort of sense of we had a very strong sense of camaraderie. It was a very different experience at Eurovision, but we were all in it together and there was a great sense of that, you know, solidarity. Um, and that and that was the first one I'd done in my job because uh, we didn't have one in 2020. So, yeah, it really difficult to choose one, but so many different memories, so many, you know, amazing experiences. So, yeah, it's hard to choose one as a, a viewer or as a participant almost not as a singer clearly but as somebody who was involved in the organizing of the event really really difficult Athens was very special because that was the first time I went as um, a journalist and the first time I'd worked at Eurovision and that was a real ambition of mine was to work at Eurovision um, and work for the BBC at Eurovision and that's what I did in Athens I, I produced two radio shows there for the BBC, for for Radio Manchester, because Daz Samson, the UK's representative, was from Manchester. So we went to Athens with two presenters and I set up a connection in the kitchen of the Euro Club in Athens. And we did two shows literally outdoors at midnight in Athens in the the moonlight (laughs) 
<laughs> connected to to Manchester via a, it's a, an ISDN line. It's, it's, it's like a posh phone line, uh, which was put in the kitchen of the Euro Club. And we were doing this while people were partying around us at the Euro Club. So that was pretty memorable as well. <laughs> I've got to talk to you about 2021, of course, because of the significance of that contest after the pandemic. However, and there is no easy way to segue with this, I have to go back to ask you about Daz Sampson, because... You being able to spend that time and, like you said, 2006, the first year as a as a journalist working for the BBC, producing radio programmes there, first time you'd been to Eurovision in that professional capacity, and also having to deal with the man, the myth, the legend that is Daz Sampson. I mean, what, what a, a baptism of fire that must have been, Dave. Yeah, Daz was special. Daz was really special. And he was a lovely guy and was really enthusiastic about representing his country. And I remember we had a lot of chat before we went out there um, to Athens. And I saw him quite a bit in Athens. And I, I interviewed him. Apart from producing these programmes, I did an interview with him. And it was held at his hotel. And it, he literally showed up for the interview um, on the rooftop at, by the swimming pool in Athens in his bathrobe. So I interviewed him in, 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 his, in a dressing gown, basically. So that was pretty special. I always seem to say this, this line, but really, the, the glamour of the Eurovision Song Contest knows no bounds. Well, exactly. This is what people think. It's all glamour. And in fact, anybody who works in television, certainly anyone who's been backstage at Eurovision can tell you it ain't glamorous. I mean, I remember even um, in Copenhagen when it was held on um, that island, um, I was working as a journalist and covering it and, and trying to get off the island was nearly impossible because everybody was trying to get off at the same time to go back into central Copenhagen. And it became a bit of a joke trying to get out. And I remember climbing under fences um, <laughs> and finding other people who were all trying to get off this island. And we, we called it Escape from Eurovision Island. And we were getting muddy and going under fences and going through wastelands. And <laughs> it's like, this is so unglamorous <laughs> to, get, to try and just get home from this event. If only people knew, honestly. The, the things that you put yourself through for Eurovision. Yeah, exactly. But but it is all part of the fun. I mean, that's why it's really hard to choose a you know a, 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 a most memorable moment or favorite moment because there's been so many crazy experiences. I mean, I've sat you know watching semi one of the semifinals in Lisbon. I was next to the director general of the EBU, Noel Curran, who who is married to Ema Quinn, who of course is Ireland's last Eurovision winner, and they met at the contest in '96. Um, and they're married now with 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 kids, so you know, l- love through Eurovision. And I was sat next to him, and next to him was Will Ferrell. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, doing his research ahead of the the Netflix film, and so that was a very interesting experience. I remember turning to him and to Noel Curran and Will Ferrell and saying, "It was during the Icelandic song," um, and they and think Noel had said, "Who is this?" And I said, oh, it's Iceland. And I said, did you think did you think it was Ireland? Because it was very similar to the sort of ballads yes, that Ireland yeah. and, and Will, Will Ferrell uh, cracked a smile. And that was quite a nice moment, you know. So it's just been great. You know, I've been so lucky to be, to be a part of this uh, over so many years in different capacities and so many different memories of in different parts of the of, of, of the yeah, the show, basically. We could easily end the end the, the the interview with you there, Dave. I mean, we've got we've got loads of brilliant memories there, and that's why the contest to me is so brilliant that we get the chance to to hear brilliant guests like you share those memories, Dave. A, a quick one, and before we started recording, you said that actually all of these questions are a bit like trying to decide between your favourite children, which is very difficult. Y- your favourite Eurovision song? Yes. Well, again, so many. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I I really like a lot of the '80s Eurovision stuff and the sound of the sort of the '80s Eurovision. Uh, I particularly really like a lot of the German songs of the '80s, and they were all songs about freedom and walls coming down. And uh, one of my favourites is definitely uh, "Über die Brücke" again, um, Ingrid 
Peters from 86. That's a great synthy German Eurovision pop stomper from the 80s. I love Telegram from 1977 from Germany as well. Disco Eurovision, which was, you know, that was the peak of, you know, disco. I love the way musical genres, you know, come to Eurovision, sometimes a few years late. Um, but that was really at that the very moment disco was was just everywhere, um, and yeah, so many others. Grande Amore in Vienna, love love that. Uh, if I look at my Spotify playlist about the most played songs, they are some of them. Um, but my favorite, I always say when people ask my favorite, is Italy '84, Itreni di Tuzur, which is Franco Battiato and Andalice's Italian song of that year. Love, love, love that. It's just so different from anything else in that contest and possibly ever at Eurovision. And it's just got amazing lyrics that are just about, you know, a a train running through the Tunisian desert. Franco Battiato, if you don't know him, was sort of the Serge Gainsbourg of Italy, you know, huge star, very avant-garde, you know, different type of music not in the mainstream and Alice was a big star and they sang together and he wrote a lot for her and and just that song and the performance and it's all synthy I love it it's got opera at the end it's got Italian is an amazing language to sing in it's really mellifluous so I just love Itreni de Tazur that's that I would say is my favorite I never tire of listening to that what a brilliant description of that song let's let's have a listen Dave you described it so brilliantly but let's hear that now Nei villaggi di frontiera guardano passare i treni Dave, it always seems to come back to Italy with you in the Eurovision Song Contest. That's what we've uh, that's what we've learned so far from this uh, from this interview. I feel like with the next question, you've already given away so many of your brilliant answers. I was going to say, what is Dave your most memorable moment at the Eurovision Song Contest? But you've already given me so many. Whether it's Will Ferrell at, at Eurovision in 2018, whether it's Escape from Eurovision Island in 2014. I mean, are there any others that you've got up your sleeve that you feel like sharing? <laughs> Yes, I mean, oh God, Belgrade was was incredible because um, I wasn't going to Belgrade, but I got asked to go quite late by a colleague at the BBC to go out and, and work and be a pundit for BBC local radio. And so I'd already planned a party at my house uh, for the Saturday night. So Belgrade was great because I watched the semi-final. It was the first year of two semi-finals. Watched the first semi-final at home, having decorated my living room for the show with red and blue fairy lights, because that was the colours of of Serbia and the colours of that show and the confluence of sound. Um, And I flew out to Belgrade on Wednesday, watched the semi-final, second semi-final in Belgrade, did all these interviews with local BBC stations on Friday, I think, and then flew back Saturday morning to Manchester via somewhere, and I've forgotten now, uh, to have my party. So that was a fantastic experience. And out in Belgrade, I met someone who became a really good friend who works at the BBC um, called Paul Henley. And he has been forever known since Belgrade as uh, Shady by another colleague um, from the BBC. <laughs> because during that year, of course, it was the year of Shady Lady, um, Ukraine's entry. And there was a, that routine uh, with the boxes uh, and the, the, sort of... the boxes which which always looked like they needed a bit of a wipe down yes <laughs> indeed um <laughs> but paul paul did the routine in we, we were in the hotel room and there was a lot of late night interviews going on there was all, all all those years i went as a journalist there was a lot of interviews in the early morning and very late at night um and that one i, remember, I think he was doing an interview and i was in the hotel room with him and, and his producer alex grundon and he was in between interviews doing the shady lady routine against the bathroom wall, which I think was 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 like the like the it was like frosted glass. 
And that was just incredible. I think I nearly, I thought I was going to die of laughter because I was coughing so much and I was having an asthma attack. It was so hilarious. Um, and again, late night interviews, Baku, um, I was doing an interview with BBC Five Live and I always did, was always put on every year before I worked for the EBU to sort of argue for Eurovision. And this was a year I was doing, an in, and Baku was so, uh, in the time zone was so far ahead of, the UK. I think the interview was probably about 11 p.m. in the UK because it was on a late show, but it must have been 3 a.m. or 2 or 3 a.m. in Baku. And I remember trying to get online outside the press centre in Baku at two o'clock in the morning, um, literally outside the press centre because it had just closed just before I was doing this interview. So I was trying to get on the Wi-Fi outside the press centre in Baku. Couldn't get on the Wi-Fi. The place was shutting down. Ended up having to do it on whatever the equivalent of whatever 4G was back then, it was probably 1G. Um, or maybe even on the phone, in fact, walking down the, the, the promenade in Baku, back to my where I was staying, um, doing an interview at two, three o'clock in the morning in, in Baku on the shores of the Caspian Sea. So again, just, just those sort of moments, just really utterly bizarre, um, but fantastic, you know. Um, Dusseldorf going to the after-show party and... And just being really grateful to be part of that, you know, to be an, an amazing event. So I really remember that. Dawn Dawn is really one of the memories that every year you see a sunrise, probably the only time a year, each year you see a sunrise in, in a Europe. And it's always in a Eurovision city after the grand final. This year was the same. Didn't get to bed till well after 6 a.m. or and the sun was well up. Um, so yeah, just some incredible moments. I mean, watching uh, the semi-final in Lisbon with uh, Heidi Stevens from The Guardian, who was blogging, uh, who, who now actually live blogs for us, which we, and it's great, you know, to have her talent. She's so funny. And I watched the semi-final in in um, Kiev, Kiev with her, um, and it was the semi-final that Croatia uh, was in with Romania. So we had the yodeling from Romania. And we had the the double suit, the, the tuxedo and the leather jacket, was it, from Croatia? Jacques Hudek, it was him. Uh, yes, that was, uh, yeah. I, and I remember sat, sat there watching that with Heidi and just thinking, this is what I love about Eurovision. This, this The fact we can have yodeling Romanians and then we have this, you know, double suited... Croatian singing about my friend uh, semi-operatically. I just loved it. I thought, yeah, so many great... But working, I mean, just working at Eurovision, it can be stressful. It, the hours are long. You don't get to watch a lot of it. You know, I haven't seen a show in the arena since probably Lisbon, I think. Um, it, But it's just a privilege. And, and, and there are memories that, you know come from the sort of adverse things that happen backstage that you'll never see or hear about because <laughs> you're trying to, you know, focus on the, the TV shows. And you've seen that. You've been back there in the delegation bubble and, you you know, those sort of, you know, the camaraderie and the people you meet and the people from all over Europe. And, and yeah, it, it's just great. There's so many experiences over the years. And like you say, you know, it is a privilege and, you mentioned there, and obviously we, we mentioned that the dinner and everything that we that we shared in Turin earlier on in the year. So we shared a lot of those similar moments in in for at least for for me in 2022. And, and like you say, it is a privilege, but also some of the things you do get to see, which is just people from all parts of Europe coming together, having a conversation sitting at the bar in the delegation bubble playing table tennis playing pinball i think the pinball machine was very popular in in 2022 in turin you know all of these things are just absolutely brilliant and like you say wouldn't happen anywhere other than the eurovision song contest yeah i mean that's it when you see the different artists from different countries getting together and doing bizarre things and you know nothing illegal clearly and uh just that is just brilliant i just love that you know just to watch almost sometimes backstage seeing who's talking to who and as you say pinball and and just yeah and everyone's equal at eurovision i think that it's hard to to really you know get that across everyone there's no stars you know everyone has the same size dressing room and and they're not glamorous dressing rooms they're just prefabricated you know boxes and everyone has the same space and everyone 
you know, is just getting on with each other and, and, and all there cheering each other on. And it really is true. It really is the most friendliest of competitions. And I think that's what makes it really special. And I have, going back to just one memory, actually, that, you know, Eurovision has given me this, um, was being a journalist in Moscow in 2009. That was when I met uh, Ken Bruce um, from BBC Radio 2, who has the most listened to radio show in Europe now. And I had been on his show back in 98 because I'd done his pop quiz in the mornings. He does a pop quiz and I'd won Popmaster. Basically, I went on Popmaster, which still uh, is still on now. And I, I won it. And I, you won Popmaster, I, I won Dave. Popmaster with, wow. uh, you had to do three songs from, uh, from a one artist, which is still the format now, even the 25 years later. Um, and my artist was Spandau Ballet. And I got three Spandau Ballet songs in 10 seconds. So I won Popmaster and I won a wind-up solar-powered radio. And the whole reason for going on Popmaster was to get work experience at the BBC. So I asked Ken Bruce, oh, live on air, can I please swap my prize for a week of work experience, an internship <laughs> at BBC Radio 2? And he said, on air, never give a prize back, Dave, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> And I did it. I got a week's work experience uh, from Ken Bruce uh, at Radio 2. And it was just after the Birmingham Eurovision. And I met Terry Wogan for the first time in an elevator going up to the to Radio 2 studios. And I, I said, I've been to Birmingham. And he went, why? <laughs> I said, because it was, it was incredible, Terry. It was incredible. And um, so, so anyway, I had that experience with Ken Bruce. And then the next time I met Ken Bruce was in Moscow at the Eurovision Song Contest in 2009 and I and he I was staying in the same hotel as the BBC delegation and, and him and everyone else and then it was Graham Norton's first year I've got other stories about that but um I sat with Ken Bruce for hours one night and just talking to him about radio and I was a radio journalist at the time um and that was incredible was, that I think yeah if I I mean it's 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 Eurovision related because I would never have had that opportunity and he, he every year I see Ken Bruce now and I saw him in Turin, and he's the nicest guy and the most talented radio pre presenter and one of my heroes. Um, so Eurovision gave me that opportunity to to connect with Ken Bruce. And, and as he, you know, he's, that's just, yeah, that's probably one of my favourite, if not my favourite moment, was, was sitting, talking to Ken Bruce. And he probably was bored out of his mind. <laughs> I don't know, but he didn't show it. <laughs> And he's been so kind and friendly and I had a great chat with him in Turin as well this year. So, yeah, I, I, I think probably that moment of all moments was, was, was the most special. If you don't ask, you don't get. That's what my mum always said. If you don't ask, you don't get. And I think that definitely resonates. But it's brilliant that, like you say, you know, the opportunities and you afford the opportunities to people as well, you know, are potentially there if you're so passionate about it. And it is a brilliant, brilliant thing to, to work on. Dave, if we if we move forward to our, our final two questions, which, you know, I appreciate we've already had such a brilliant conversation, so many incredible memories. But obviously, one of the standout memories of 2022, you are, of course, working for the EBU, but of course, you are a Brit. To see the United Kingdom finishing in, in second place, of course, for the first time in, as we both know, a very long time, an amazing thing. And one of the questions that we do like to ask is, you know, how does the UK keep up that, that momentum at the Eurovision Song Contest? I mean, as a as probably more of a as a fan rather than as as someone here working for the EBU, but as a fan, you know, what what do the BBC do do next? Well, yeah, I mean, that was incredible to to be there to see that. And the very first Eurovision I went to, as I said, was Birmingham '98, and the UK was second that year. Um, and so this was the first second place since then, which and so amazing. I never thought I'd see the day that you know we the UK would be would be up there again. And but it, it's something uh, you know we we talk regularly to all the broadcasters who take part, and we talked a lot to the BBC um, about how to do Eurovision, how to succeed at Eurovision, and to see that this year was incredible. And I think they they took on board what so many countries have been doing for many years is you know bringing an amazing artist an incredible song and staging it fantastically and they got all those things right this year um and we'd already always said uh, and i'd said personally this is 
it, it's as simple as that, basically. And it's, of course, there's, it's multi-layered. It's, no, it's not as simple as just those three things. Or to get those three things right is not simple. But they, that's what they did. And I think building on that, all countries, uh, you know, to, 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 to tick those boxes, essentially. The artist has to believe in what they're singing. The song has to grab an audience. Uh, it has to be special and it has to be authentic and it has to be staged really well. And I think the BBC can build on that, like all broadcasters, next year by just looking at what they did right. And and those things, are all those three ingredients, I would advise any country. And I went last year to Spain to talk to RTV, a panel on RTV about how they could refresh what they did at Eurovision and succeed at Eurovision again. And they did the same thing this year. They, they looked where they came, you know, they, they got it right. They took an artist who believed in their song and staged it incredibly. The authenticity was there and it came out of the television and it grabbed you. And I think, you know, building on that, the UK, you know, can do great things because it has that music heritage it has that market it has so many talented acts and i think sam rider's positivity and success means that it won't be fighting you know it won't be banging against doors all the time closed doors for the bbc in the future i think more and more artists and record labels now will will see what happened this year and go we want to be a part of that because this is the world's biggest live music event this has huge potential for artists to be a part of and i'm so pleased to see that i'm pleased to see spain do that as well um it's great to see countries that have, have struggled turn it around and i always say it takes one year to do that and both Spain and the UK did that this year. And they really need to build on that. And I really hope they, they can in the future. Absolutely fascinating to see what happens with, with both the UK and, and Spain, of course, and so many other countries in 2023. Dave, we normally finish the contest and me with a question around if there was one change you could make to the Eurovision Song Contest, what would it be? But it seems a little unfair to ask someone who works for the EBU <laughs> that question. So instead, and I hope the listeners don't mind, I am simply going to replace that question with another, which is, how much are you looking forward to Eurovision 2023? Coming back to the UK, but of course, a competition that will be very unique in atmosphere, very unique in presentation, for very obvious reasons. How excited are you for what's still to come and for Eurovision 2023? Oh, so excited. I mean, it's going to be really, really special. And that I think I've probably said more than once during our chat is one of the things that makes this job and being a part of the Eurovision universe so amazing is that it's so different every year and you just don't know what's going to come. And every year is influenced by where you go. And obviously when Ukraine took part this year, we, we knew all of us knew, you know, watching it that there was a very, very strong chance Ukraine would win. Um, And, you know, there was also, going to be complications if that happened in terms of staging next year's event so to have the UK then come second and then obviously accept our invitation to stage it and to go to the UK for a Eurovision having not had one there for 25 years is going to be really really special obviously for me being British and growing up watching Eurovision and and having been to Birmingham being my first taste of a live Eurovision it's going to be you know for me personally really really special to be to be going back and and working with the BBC again because that's where a lot of my career was spent um but being there for Ukraine as well and having that reflection of Ukraine's win in a Eurovision because we haven't had a Eurovision like that for 40 years since the Netherlands took on the competition for Israel in 1980. So, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to next year because it's going to be different for other reasons than going to a new country that hasn't hosted for a long time or has never hosted before, like when we were in Portugal. Um, it's going to be such a special, special uh, occasion. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to see what the BBC do with Eurovision after so long, building on their success and obviously working with, you know the Ukrainian elements as well it's going to be a really really fascinating year and it's going to yeah it's it's going to be different it's going to be special and I really really am looking forward to it 
so much to look forward to. David, it is always an absolute joy to have you on the Euro trip. It's been a joy to have you on the contest in me. Thank you for so many incredible stories. It was absolutely brilliant. And uh, and hopefully we'll get the chance to, to create more brilliant memories in the UK in 2023 as well, wherever that may be. But Dave, thank you so much for, for chatting. No, thank you. It's been amazing to go over <laughs> all these different memories and uh, and yeah and, and have a chance to sort of discuss you know why I'm so passionate about Eurovision it's been a great opportunity and I'm very grateful for the uh, uh, offer so thank you very much indeed brilliant Dave thank you so much and good luck with everything for uh, for next year thank you a huge thanks to Dave Goodman for taking so much time out of what I imagine is a very busy diary of his at the moment uh, to come and chat to you all about his love for the Eurovision Song Contest, Rob. We, we promised beforehand that there was going to be so many tremendous stories. We promise that every week. Hopefully we do deliver. I can, I can promise you we definitely de- delivered this week. Yeah, I think anyone who listened to the last 40 or so minutes will agree with you, or at least I hope they will, because we have been all over the place with Dave there, haven't we? We were talking about the contest in Belgrade and Dave's mate Shady doing his dance in the shower. (laughs) We went back to Dave having a bath during a contest in the 1980s. We have been all over the place there, but brilliant to be able to bring you that conversation and it just shows how international this series of contests and me has been because so far we've had interviews from the uk interviews in dublin in stockholm and now in geneva honestly it's uh, we're living up to our name aren't we of the euro trip we've certainly been on a bit of a euro trip so far in this series uh one quick question can you tell us any more about was it a sheep brain in turin what on earth was going on there I honestly forget now. I can't remember what Dave said, but yeah, it was some sort of animal brain. Um, and what what I didn't say in, in that, weirdly, because I actually I'm quite proud of it. I also had a little nibble. Oh, you did? Yeah, Dave passed the plate round the table, actually. And there weren't many of us that were brave enough to have a bit of a nibble. It was a bit chickeny, but I feel like that is a cliche because everyone says that everything that's weird tastes a bit like chicken. Yeah, if you don't know what meat it is, it's chicken. Yeah, it tasted a bit like chicken but not as nice as chicken. So in the future, I'll probably just stick to chicken. Or you might just have a pizza or a pasta like everybody else does when they go to Italy. I'll be honest with you, that night I had gnocchi. It was very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fair play. Oh, a huge thanks, Rob, for for inviting Dave on. And and Dave as well, thank you for taking so much time out of your diary. Like I said, we, we know probably how busy it is at the moment. So it's great to have you on. At this point, I would usually say, thanks for joining us. We'll see you again in a week. However, Rob, that, although it's true, but we will see you beforehand. We definitely will, because you may have seen on Twitter earlier on this week, we posted, feels like a two-episode week. That's because, everyone, it is a two-episode week. We will be back with you on Friday, not with a new episode of The Contest and Me. You'll have to wait till next week for that one. But with a very special episode, which gives you a very unique insight into a very special job at Eurovision and an even better insight into the United Kingdom and Eurovision 2022. That is tremendously insightful. Nobody's going to have a clue. Although, honestly, sound the alarm. It's a bonus episode from the Eurotrip and sound the alarm. We're going to be talking about the BBC and the UK, which we know you love. Before you get excited and you tweet, oh my God, they're talking to Sam Ryder. It's not Sam Ryder. just want to put that out there now. <laughs> but you are going to want to tune in on Friday. When that episode drops, I promise you're going to want to listen and obviously keep an eye on our socials as well. Thursday night, we'll be announcing who we're talking to on that episode. And that episode will drop at midnight on Friday. Like every episode does on a Wednesday, but it'll be dropping at midnight on Friday. So keep refreshing. If you want to stay up late on Thursday night, keep refreshing it and you'll be the first to listen. But until Friday, when we join you again, uh, make sure you keep in touch with us on socials. It's at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and hello at EurotripPodcast.com on the email. And make sure you subscribe, leave us a review and rate us five stars. From me, James, it's goodbye. And from me, Rob, it's goodbye. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, 
people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.